Well, how are y'all feeling tonight? Yeah, it's like the perfect temperature for a nap. But don't give in. I have a highlighter I'll throw at you. In the I'm really tired, and all I did today was watch y'all step through hula hoops very slowly and strategically. So I imagine uh, that soccer game on the field sounded pretty intense. A couple of injuries came out of it, so had to have been fun. I, I, because I love you and because I have a body, too, uh, that limits me, uh, I'm going to attempt to be a little bit briefer and simpler with uh, the point of tonight. Um, but to set up the passage before I read it, uh, which is in Jeremiah 29, if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have your Bible, it would be helpful tonight to keep that passage open. We're only looking at a few verses from it, but uh, I want you to see with your own eyes where what I'm saying is coming from. Um, check me out. Make sure this is actually uh, coming from God and not just from Ben. Um, but here's the dilemma that we created with, with our first message this morning. If indeed you and I are exiles in this world, resident aliens, we're in a foreign, strange place that doesn't quite fit. We feel a little bit like square pegs in a round hole. If that's the case, then how are we supposed to live in this place? And better yet, how are we supposed to interact with all of the people around us? Most of whom, many of whom, have not uh, been reconciled to God. What's our relationship with the world supposed to be like in other people? Perhaps you've heard it phrased, uh, we're supposed to be in the world but not of the world. That's okay. I, I guess I like that. Um, tonight we'll talk about what it, what it looks like, more than what it means maybe, what it looks like to be in the world as a Christian. And tomorrow night we'll talk about what it looks like uh, to, to not be a part of the world, to not be shaped by its values, by its worldview, but to be strategically present in the world. And so that's what we'll do tomorrow night. But here's the big idea tonight. The surprise of the world throughout human history, I, the biggest surprise in the world is that God loves and saves and changes sinners. And you know that because throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, the people of God and the world around are continually confused about who God loves, saves, and changes. Right? It happened with Israel. All the other nations are like, what? The runt of the nation? The smallest, the weakest of the nations? Why did you choose Israel? Why were you gracious to Israel? It happens um, with the Babylonians when God sends Israel, we'll talk about tonight, into Babylon, which was like the cesspool of the ancient world. That's how Israelites saw it. God, wait a second. Why do you love these Babylonians? Why are you patient with them? Why are you sending your grace to them? It happens with, uh, with the Gentiles in the New Testament. It happens with Saul. Wait a second, the persecutor? Why him? That's the surprise of the world, is that God actually loves, saves, and changes sinners. Jesus says he came for the sick, not the healthy, the unrighteous, not the righteous. So keep your eyes peeled for this, little hints of this as I read the passage. Uh, this is Jeremiah um, 29. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 9. Uh, brace yourself. There's some weird Jewish words in here. <laughs> I'm going to attempt not to butcher these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom King Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So to bring you up to speed, all of these people he just mentioned are, have already been hauled off to jail in Babylon, right? They've been taken captive uh, over there, and this letter is going to them. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah, the politicians, the, 
um, the craftsmen, the metal workers, the artist kind of people, the culture maker kind of people, after they had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of um, Elasa, the son of Saphon, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Take a pause. <laughs> okay. This is what the letter said. Here's what the word of God said to those people, to those Israelites who are already in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. This is a weird command, considering what you'd expect. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and so that you do not decrease. But Israel, seek the welfare of Babylon where I have sent you into exile. Pray to me on Babylon's behalf. For in Babylon's welfare or in its prospering, you will find your welfare, your prospering. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. He's talking about false prophets. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie. It's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray for help in believing the surprise. We have a litany of reasons why uh, we are beyond your reach, beyond your grace, beyond your patience of why we have kind of uh, sinned one too many times and why we're on our own now. And, and of course, those who do not know you and have not tasted your grace perhaps feel that as well. Father, by your mercy, come tonight and woo us again. Show us your heart for the world. Show us your heart for your people. Show us your unbelievable patience. Would we taste that even tonight? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I said I want to keep tonight simple, and I want to keep the ideas about tonight simple. And so here's a big idea, and then we'll kind of bring it down to earth in a couple of ways. The big idea is this. Here's the idea. You are a culture maker. Everywhere you go, every waking hour of your day, everything you do, intentionally or unintentionally, Actively or passively, with forethought or accidentally, cultivates and creates culture in big ways and in small ways. Now, that's a little bit abstract. And by the way, I should say, there's some books called Culture Making. There's, a, there's some fads going around. I haven't read that book. I don't know what it says. Um, so I'm not trying to be faddish. I'm just trying to make an observation of who we are as human beings. That everywhere you go, whether you want to be doing it or not, you're creating culture in big ways, in small ways. And that culture is affecting everybody around you. So it's like you're creating ripples in the pond that are radiating out and touching the shores of everybody's life around you. Here's what I mean. On your drive to YXL or your flight to YXL, you created a culture either intentionally or accidentally, either actively or passively. And it was either a, a gospel culture, a life-giving culture, or a life-draining culture. So let's say you're in a car with like four or five other people. You either intentionally created a culture, a life-giving culture, maybe by actually making eye contact with the new person in the parking lot before you left for this trip. 
you noticed them and you walked over to them and you said, hey, I'm Ben. I'm really glad you're here. How'd you hear about this? Uh, maybe it was you asked somebody, hey man, how's the summer been for you so far? Or why are you coming on this trip? You, you saw them, you engaged them, you loved them, you listened to them, you honored them, you humanized them. Or maybe you accidentally, inadvertently, passively, you didn't, you didn't even know you were doing it, you accidentally contributed to a culture of isolationism where it's kind of an every man or every girl for herself culture where people feel very lonely. People feel like they have to earn their keep. People feel like you're not interested in them. How do we do that? Sometimes it's as simple a thing as putting in the earbuds for four hours and checking out. See, it's, it's little things. It's unscripted things, things we think about, things that are subconscious. We are always making culture. Have you ever been on the receiving end of culture? Somebody in the car that you were in and you didn't know anybody and, and they, start, they started talking to you and they said, they didn't do the inside joke thing where you're the one left out, but they actually brought you into the conversation. Do you remember how life-giving that was? Have you been on the receiving end of, uh, of a life-draining culture where you weren't brought in on the inside jokes? No one realized you're the new guy, you're the new girl, and you're kind of left at the fringes all week, lonely, can't, can't wait to get done with whatever trip you're on or whatever else. Have you been on the receiving end of that? You know how powerful what probably didn't even occur to those people. It had a powerful effect on you. At any given moment, in every situation, we're creating culture, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, you participated in creating a culture during the little hula hoop game we did today. Maybe without even thinking about it, uh, did, you, did you kind of gently, patiently coach your team and kind of like, you might have been rolling your eyes on the inside, man, we fell again and we gotta go back. Or did, you, did, you, did the frustration come out? Did the grumbling come out? And you created a culture of everyone's walking on eggshells because they're afraid to make you mad. Did you participate in a culture of patience where they said, okay, hey, let's figure this out. It's okay to mess up. This is fun. At the soccer ball game, at the other events you did today, you were, you were participating in a culture. Whether you realized it or not, you did. And there were effects from that. At the dinner table tonight, how you engage people, how you talk to them, whether you notice them, what you ask about them. You create a culture, accidentally or intentionally. You do it with your parents. You do it with the people on your swim team. You do it with all the buddies that work with you at your summer job. Every day, this is always, always happening. And the ways we participate in it, like I said earlier, are as subtle and simple as things like eye contact or body language or as simple, how are you doing? Or I've noticed you've been quiet the past couple of days. Are you okay? Those little things communicate big things. Tiny little things like eye contact signals to a person, I'm not invisible, he sees me, right? Little things like your arm around a person who's having a hard week, even if you say nothing, means the world, right? Little things like saying, hey man, I've really been struggling with this, I need your help, will you pray for me? Confessing your sin, repenting. Little things like that have a radiating impact on the people around you for better uh, and for worse. And it's either creating, helping create a gospel culture that says it's okay to be broken because Jesus isn't. It's okay to struggle because God doesn't struggle. It's okay to need help because God is a helper. We're creating that or we're creating the anti-culture of those things where it says it's not okay to struggle, it's not okay to be honest, it's not okay to be transparent because if you do, you'll be shunned, you'll be, you'll be judged. It's not okay to open up because no one will listen to you or follow up with you. It's not okay to um, engage another person because no one will join in with you and help you. 
There's a lot on the line with this kind of stuff. Now, when you add up all these little miniature culture moments, these microcultures, I'm making up this terminology. I didn't read it somewhere. I'm just trying to figure out words to describe what I'm talking about. These li you add up enough of these little microcultures, and it ends up in a, in a megaculture. And a megaculture is what people talk about when they come to your church and say, oh, man, that church is so fill-in-the-blank. Friendly. If people say your church is so friendly, people like actually want to get to know you. It's easy to find community. They are, they're not, it's not like some magician in the back said, this church is hereby friendly and inviting. That's the accumulated effect of like a thousand tiny little moments of people noticing newcomers walking across the room, shaking their hand, remembering their name the next week. That's how people notice the big effect. Your youth group has a culture. Is it a place that's easy for new people to get plugged in, or is it have this impermeable wall there? Your best friend relationships all have these things and add up to big cultures that either help people believe the story that God loves, saves, and changes sinners, or it hinders people believing that narrative, that reality that God loves, saves, and, and changes sinners. Does this make sense? It's always telling this story, and it's helping people believe that and say, maybe this is true, or it's making people either cynical, oh, they always talk about this, they don't really do it, or it's pushing people away and saying, there's no, this doesn't hold me water. So you don't need me to tell you at this point, this, this culture-making thing is super important, right? Because we're always doing it, every waking hour, probably not in your sleep, but every other waking hour you are, we're making it, and so we need to be attentive to it. Now... I told you to open Jeremiah 29 so you can be sure that what we're talking about tonight is coming from the Bible and not from me. And so what in the world does this stuff have to do with Jeremiah chapter 29? This weird stuff I just read with all these weird names. Let me give you a really quick refresher of everything that's happened up in the Bible up to this point regarding Israel, which Israel, the son of God, that's how the Bible calls Israel, right? Um, Israel was supposed to be, remember what they're supposed to be? You're blessed to be a what? A blessing. You're saved, in a sense, to participate with God's saving work in the world. So he's saving Israel to be a, a first responder to the brokenness of the world. Israel's supposed to be the billboard at the intersection of all the cities in the world saying, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is this good, he's this sweet, this precious, this valuable, this beautiful. That's what Israel was supposed to be, a living, embodied billboard that broadcast to the world, look what this God did to me, this little weakling that he'll do for you. That's what Israel was supposed to be, a culture, a, a gospel culture maker, cultivator, right? Be fruitful and multiply, go out to the ends of the earth. This is all the stuff scripture is talking about with this stuff. Israel was supposed to be an appetizer, to whet the appetite of the world, to ask more questions, to say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Tell me about your God again. He did what for you? And you did what? For, you, did, you did nothing for him and he did this for you? You're this weak and this broken and this rebellious and he's done this? It's supposed to spark their interest. And they were supposed to create a culture. They were called to create this gospel culture that I've alluded to earlier where it's okay to be weak. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to come out in the open with your shame because God bears your shame on your behalf. <laughs> It's a culture where we love each other, we bear each other's burdens, we know each other, we're known by each other, we're connected to each other. It's a culture where we pursue justice, where we help the weak, where we speak for the voiceless, where we love the poor. Now, 
Do you need me to tell you how Israel did with that? No. Israel became the counter, the counterculture to all of these things, both intentionally and unintentionally. And even in this passage, we see it. Even when Israel had basically been evicted from the promised land, and I use that word carefully, like the promised land, it was kind of like God was the landlord, and there was a contract, and it had, it had pieces of the contract. You had to keep or else you get evicted. Your couch gets put out on the lawn, and you're out of here. God says, you're going to live in my land. It's a new Eden, and you're going to be a new humanity, and you're going to show the world my power to transform dead people. And this is going to be my special place, my beautiful place, my clean place. And Israel turned Eden back into Skid Row. And that doesn't look good for God in front of all the watching nations, right? It's not good for his reputation, and he says as much in Ezekiel. So he says, you're out of here. You're out of here. So he sends them to Babylon, which was, I don't know, uh, whatever the nearest um, skid row to where you live. Like, is it Bourbon Street in New Orleans, or is it the Strip in Las Vegas, or like Thailand with all the sex trafficking stuff going on over there? But imagine the most depraved, just like awful, godless place you can think of. That's how the Jews saw Babylon. And it was a well-earned reputation in a lot of ways. Completely godless. God, this passage says Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites captive, but then God says, yeah, but why did Nebuchadnezzar do it? Because I sent my people there in exile for a lot of different reasons. But the reason we're going to focus in on tonight is that God didn't give up using his broken, rebellious people as the billboard of his grace to the world. Even when their lives had gone off the tracks, God's use of his people didn't go off the tracks. Even though they had ruined this enterprise, God makes it successful. And so here's how this happens. They get evicted out of the promised land. They go to Babylon. And interestingly, uh, did, you, did you pick up on who was taken to Babylon? It's very specific. It didn't say the Israelites. It said the craftsmen, like the artists. It said the metal workers. It said the politicians, the priests, the elders. Who are these people? They're the culture makers of a society. It's like the music writers, the artists. These are the people who, who make culture. They're the ones who are exiled to Babylon. Some Jews were sent to Egypt. Some were left in Israel and Judah. These ones were sent to Babylon. This is, this is the Babylonian way of kind of assimilating people to get their culture and then to go spread it everywhere else. But that's beside the point for tonight. But basically, it's the culture makers that are exiled to Babylon, which is ironic. Nebuchadnezzar had an idea of how to turn these Jews into his culture makers, and God had another idea. But they didn't get it. So they go to Babylon, and guess where they set up shop? If they had been aware, remembered the mentality, remembered the calling of Israel that we're supposed to be a billboard for his grace right in Times Square, where do you think they would have gone and, made, and, and kind of made home? Probably somewhere close to the, where Babylonians are. And we know that didn't happen, not explicitly from this passage. You flip back to Jeremiah 28, you know what these false prophets were telling Israel. These false prophets lost their lives. God was so angry that these prophets were misleading his people. They told the Israelites, hey, suck it up, grin and bear it, because you're only going to have to be there a couple of years. God's going to crush those nasty, godless Babylonians. They were feeding the pride of the Israelites. They were feeding their self-righteous superiority. They were saying, don't go live there. Just look, get a couple of tents, set up shop on the city limits outside, like in the little suburbs, and just 
suck it up, it's, it's going to be awful, but you'll be out of there in a couple of years, just get through it, okay? That's what the false prophets were saying to Israel. That's why the first letter that lands to these people in exile is talking about housing. Isn't that weird? Like, did you pick up on that? Like, I would have expected, maybe you would have expected God's first message to his people post-exile is Israel, maybe a rebuke, or maybe a, a obey my commandments. That's why you're here. You, you broke the covenant. Or maybe it would have been um, uh, bad company corrupts good character. Israel, be careful who you make friends with. Retreat, withdraw, keep yourself pure from these dirty people. That's what I would have expected um, God to say, perhaps. And that is uh, not at all what God says. He says the exact opposite. Listen to it again, starting in verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons. He's basically saying, multiply your families, put down roots. Multiply there, don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to me. Beg me, pester me on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. God is tying the Babylonians' prosperity to the Israelites' prosperity. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a good way to get the Israelites to pray for them. <laughs> Saying, hey, your future tied up in this too. Maybe they wanted to pray for them more at that point. I'm not sure. But that's God's urgent message to these people. He was encouraging them, to, in a sense, to be homeowners or gardeners or winemakers. Now, this is a little bit odd again. So when you add all of this up, what does this mean? What's the big idea for all of this specific instructions to the Israelites? How they're supposed to live in the world, and it's for you. How you and I are supposed to live in this world. It's a very strange place. It's foreign to us, and we don't fit. Okay? Okay. Uh, what, what's the big picture of all this? I think I'll go back to where we started. Israel, make gospel culture here. Be a sweet aroma in their noses so that they are wooed and attracted and drawn to me. In the little things you do and the big things you do, put down roots here. Have an ownership mentality, not a tourist mentality, not a rental mentality. Now, y'all are not at the... Uh, at the stage of buying and renting homes. You, you're familiar with a little bit of tourism, but um, those of us in the room who drove you here or are a little bit older uh, have, have reached the stage of life where we have rented apartments, rented houses, maybe bought houses. But there's, there's basically three postures a Christian can have in the world. When we think about what's it mean to be in the world, engaging the world, loving the world, making culture in the world that blesses the world. There's basically three ideas we can have about this, three defaults. And I want you, as I, as I go through these, to be asking yourself, which are you most prone to? Because that will answer the question, what does repentance look like? The first is a tourism posture. The world is your hotel, right? The world is your hotel. How do you treat hotel rooms or motel rooms when you're traveling? Yeah, do you, do you lose much sleep at night over, like, some of the little problems or annoyances you notice at the hotel? No. Um, do you have any care? Do you even recognize what buildings surround the hotel or what condition the neighborhood's in there? Probably not unless it's really bad, then you're like, let's go somewhere else. But, um, but you, 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 don't, you don't notice any of that stuff. It's just not on your mind because that's what hotels are for. 
they, they provide you a good, and you consume that good, and then you're back to your life on your way. But there's, there's no investment, there's no ownership, there's no putting down roots in a hotel, right? Because you're a tourist. You're there to take. You ever been on a road trip? You ever been out of town for a week or two with your family? You're, you're a sightseer. There's a posture of life for the Christians that we're prone to slip into in, as exiles in this world, elect exiles in this world, where we become sightseers of the world. <coughs> Where we have no sense of ownership, we never lose sleep over the world's problems. We never lose sleep over uh, that, that co-worker with us that, at the summer job and the, the problems they're going through. We, we just don't think about it that much. We consume, we take, we glean really good, cool stuff from the world maybe, from our friends. But there's no sense of, of giving back because in a hotel you don't do that. So if you have a tourism posture... This kind of stuff God's talking about here, how he wants his people to live in the world, sounds outrageous, right? That's like uh, the, the toilet breaks at your hotel room and the manager at the front desk says, well, go get your toolbox and fix it. And you're like, wait, what? I don't live here. There's also a rental mentality. Now, um, I've rented houses. We, my wife and I were able to, a couple of years ago to buy our first house uh, in Las Cruces. But the first year we lived there, we rented a house. And I've rented plenty of apartments in Tiny little apartments in cities before. And uh, what is a rental mentality? You have this, like, I don't know, if, you've ever, if your family's ever rented an apartment or is renting a house right now, there's a rental mentality where it's kind of like, it's a, it's a leave me alone mentality. You have your house, I have mine. You have your unit, I have my unit. You take care of you, I'll take care of me. Unless things get really rowdy and I have to call the cops, you do you, I'll do me, let's not cross paths. Uh, there's, there's still not a sense of ownership and investment and skin in the game with a rental mentality, right? Like when I rented a house, it was in a neighborhood on a street, and like I mowed the lawn, but when any, anything in the house broke, I didn't go fix it because it wasn't my house. I didn't have a mentality of being invested in that neighborhood. I saw people driving through there all the time. I never thought about, man, what are the neighbor's kids? What danger is there to my neighbor's kids that all these cars are driving through? I never called the city council and said, hey, maybe you should put speed bumps here or put a cop there to keep people from speeding. I just didn't think that way because I didn't live there. I just slept in a house there, right? There's a rental posture in this world, too, that we can have. The Israelites had it in Babylon. We're not really here that long. We're just here for a little bit. Suck it up. We'll move on our way uh, eventually. And so there's still no genuine skin in the game or engagement with anyone around us. And then there's the homeowner mentality, and this is specifically what God says, his words, not mine. Build a house. Now, they didn't have mobile homes back then, so he's assuming you're going to be here a long time. He says it later, 70 years. Build a house and live in it. Move in. Throw your suitcase away. You're not going to need it. Unpack your bags. Put down roots. Join the PTA. Put a garden in your backyard, a little vegetable garden. Go, go open up a business. <coughs> Don't worry about getting closer to your family because your family's going to grow here, right here in Babylon. This is where I'm going to grow you. This is where I'm going to use you. This is where I'm going to bless you. This is where I'm going to bless others through you, right here on Times Square in the middle of the world. The godless world. That's what, it, it's, it's crazy talk, it seems. That is what God desires from his people. If you read uh, Jeremiah 28, you'll see how furious he was with the false prophets 
I don't think you'll ever find a, a shortage of supply in our churches of people who, who give you a litany of reasons why it's okay to withdraw, retreat back into a holy huddle that's hermetically sealed from the dirty world. You'll always find people giving great theological arguments for why you, you're not responsible for your neighbor. Just like the Levite and the priest and the Good Samaritan, just like Jonah didn't feel responsible for Nineveh. And God's like, are you more concerned about your plight, Jonah, or the hundreds of thousands of people who live there? This is the homeowner mentality. It's a mentality where right now I own a house in a neighborhood. Guess what the, we did the first week? I went across the street and we met our neighbors. Why? Partly because I felt a little bit guilty. I should do this. Partly because I think for pure motives, I wanted to be known and I wanted to know my neighbors. I wanted to open up the lines of communication, but also because I didn't want to look up five years later and be like, hey, I'm Ben. I've seen you every day of my life, but never walked across the street. So we immediately got to know our neighbors and started putting down roots in that neighborhood. Guess what? A truck sped by the house the other day, and I'm that guy now. We, look, we, like called, the, we called the cops, and we're like, this car's going like 60 in my neighborhood. The kid, someone's kids are going to get hurt. I own the problem because it's my neighborhood now. My neighbor's problems are my problems. An ambulance goes to my neighbor's house about once a month. So we go ask, what's wrong? Can we help? Is there anything we can do? Because it's my neighborhood. It's my house. I'm in it. I've got skin in the game. Their prosperity is my prosperity. Their decline is my decline. We are interconnected. So we get to know them. We invest in it. We put down roots. And God calls us to pray, to intercede on the behalf of the city. Why? Because Babylon's not praying for Babylon. Is the world praying for its salvation, for its rescue, for the lights to go on, for the hearts to soften, the ears to open? You No. The people of God will talk tomorrow night. You are a priest. You should imagine a clerical collar on you at all times. You are a priest to the world. That's what you were saved to be. So we intercede on behalf of those who do not know the Lord. We're not just a billboard for them. We're not just a sweet aroma to them. But we are also a priest, one who intercedes for them. So God comes and confronts his people and he says, wherever you are, however you got there, you're there because I want you there. And I want you there for this purpose, to be a strategic blessing to the people around you. Even if you're in jail. How many people has God converted in jail? Just in the New Testament. Even if it's because of your own foolishness, you've been punished and sent somewhere and you meet people there, God still uses you. That's exactly Israel's story here. Tim Keller has a quote. He says, the sicker you are, or the sickest people need medicine injected straight into their heart. That's the quickest way to get it disseminated into the body, into the bloodstream. So you jam the needle right into the heart. And he says, this great, this, the way Jesus sends his people, his church, into the world is like injecting the world's heart with the church. With blood-bought, saved, rescued, changed, and being changed people injected right into the hearts of our towns, of our swim teams, of your summer jobs, of your schools, of your youth groups. And it's to become an epicenter of fresh air, of gospel culture, where little things 
with proper motives, I'm going to look at this person to say to them, you matter. I'm going to ask this friend why you're quiet this week because I'm concerned about you. I'm going to confess my sins to this brother because I'm connected to him. Tomorrow we'll look in the passage and it will say the world is able to see the church and how different it is and able to connect the dots and turn back to God and give him praise. The very last thing is very short but very powerful. What is the motivation in all of this? This story maps perfectly onto the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, right? Who, who is the ultimate elect exile? Who is the ultimate chosen one who, who left home to live in exile? And how did Jesus live when he came? How did God live when he came in flesh through Jesus? Was he a tourist? Was he a sightseer? We have these, camp, we have these uh, people who call themselves pastors who come by our campus every now and then and they stand on a stool and they shout curses at everybody. You have, you're wearing short shorts, you're going to hell. You do this, you're going to hell. Did he just kind of travel around pronouncing judgment on people? Did he have a tourist mentality where he took, took, took and had no sense of skin in the game? What, did he have a renter mentality and he said, well, that's your problem, not my problem? Or did he have a homeowner mentality where he put roots down in your neighborhood and engaged you and saw you and blessed you and served you in the deepest places of your need? He knew you. He prayed for you. He interceded for you. He connected his future to your future. So friends, this is how much is on the line. Israel was telling a story to the world that was a counter-gospel, an anti-gospel. The way they were living was shouting to the world, God is indifferent to your plight. He is hands off. He will not get in your mess. He will stay far away and judge you and look down his nose at you. He will not see your problems as his problems. He has no sense of ownership, no skin in the game, no intercession for you. You didn't become a Christian because you heard that story. You became a Christian because you heard the gospel and you saw the gospel. Its implications lived out in the lives of the people around you. That's what it means. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like to be in the world. You're a culture maker. You've been empowered by the Spirit to be a little burst of gospel culture, even in your repentance, even in your weakness, even in your sin in returning to Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we... We ask that uh, you would um, penetrate our hearts with your word. We know that our hearts are um, stubborn. We are set in our ways. We tend towards being consumeristic people who are on the take. We're slow to recognize the need of the world and to ask, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I pray? We pray that when increasingly when we look at this world we will think about it the way you do we will feel towards it the way you do that you so loved this world that you sent you gave what was most precious to you that it might be reconciled to you would we have a heart for the world the way you do and we thank you that we are the ones who have been rescued by you we were the world we were the babylonians who have been transformed into your sons and daughters amen